Hi, and welcome to How to Second Gen, a series of conversations with people who grew up in a different country than their parents. On this podcast, we explore questions of belonging, culture clash, confused identities, and being the kid with the weird food for lunch. I'm your host, Mark Hugh. My guests on this episode are Natasha Aurora and Apoorva Chandra. In addition to being married to one another, Natasha is a children's speech therapist, and Apoorva is a program manager at Microsoft. Their parents are from India, and they were raised in the U.S. I met Apoorva while classmates in business school at Duke University. Our conversation covered topics including arranged marriage, their parents' evolving relationship with India and the U.S., Indian multiculturalism, and the phrase ABCD. My name is Apoorva Chandra. Um, I live in Seattle, Washington. My parents... um, moved to the U.S. in the, the mid to late 70s. And yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to, to talking more with, with you and having this discussion. I bounced around in the U.S. a couple of different places, ended up here in Seattle. Uh, met you, Mark, obviously, at Duke. We had a mm-hmm. at Fuqua. And right now, I, I work at Microsoft as a program manager. Great. And Natasha? My name is Natasha Aurora. Um, I grew up in California. My parents are from India, from Delhi specifically, and I work as a speech language pathologist at a public hospital. Is Aurora like? I'm curious of the like uh, the linguistic origin of it. It's it sounds so different from I suppose what I associate with common Indian names. Aurora is a super common Punjabi last name. Oh, okay. It is, I don't say it quite correctly. I mean, the second, the second R should have more of like a D sound. Um, Mm. So I I say my own name with an accent, but it's actually really common. Like you will find many Dr. Aurora's (laughs) in the directory of any um, medical institution. (laughs) My sister among them apparently now. (laughs) So yeah, it's actually very common and that's like one of those funny things where anytime there's another Aurora, people ask me like, are you guys related? And I'm like, (laughs) Um, but as a kid, I was confused because we have another family that we're super close to um, that are close friends of my parents and they have the same last name. And another thing about like growing up Indian is you call everyone auntie and uncle and I didn't know that these people were not related to me. Like I just thought <laughs> and we didn't have an extended family in California at that time. Um, but we had this big community. So I truly thought they were all my cousins and aunts and uncles. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, when did you find out that you were actually not related? I don't know. <laughs> Probably like late elementary school, like <laughs> nine, 10. I, I have no idea. And like, it doesn't matter because that's the role they played in (laughs) my life, right? Like when my, there was a time when my mom went to India and my my dad went with her when my grandfather passed away. So naturally we stayed at their house. I feel like that's, you know, basically what family does. So what's, Mm -hmm. what's the difference? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's the same in Chinese culture. Um, Everybody's auntie and uncle. Um, but we didn't have the same last name. And often they were um, growing up in the town I grew up in, white. So uh, it helped <laughs> clarify whether or not they were blood relatives. Um, but yeah, we, we use the same thing. Can you guys tell me a little bit about your parents and where they're from, where they grew up, and uh, how they got to America? 
Yeah, well, I can I, I can start things off. So um, my parents are from southern India, from the state of Karnataka. My dad grew up in Bangalore, um, which you know, growing up, you know, he grew up in late forties, fifties, sixties. Bangalore is nothing like what it is today. It was very much like a garden, sleepy town. Um, my mother grew up about four hours outside of Bangalore in a farming community known as Chikmangalore. She grew up on a coffee estate, coffee plantation. Um, my, my dad is one of five. Uh, my mom was one of 10. So pretty big families growing up. Um, at some point, like after my, after my parents got married, my dad wanted to pursue his master's degree in electrical engineering and decided to come to the U.S. and 1976 in Alabama. Um, my brother was born in India in 1973. And so my mom came a year later with him in 1977. And so, yeah, that was, that's kind of how they started out in the U.S. They ended up in Massachusetts a couple of years later where my dad did his PhD. Um, yeah, I mean, they always, they always thought that they would move back after my dad finished his studies, but you know, a master's led to a PhD, which led to a job. And then at some point, my mom said, we need, like, I want to have a second kid. And it was either we either move back to India, or we do it now and here. And, you know, I showed up in 1982. And that was kind of the anchor that kept us in the US. Uh, my mom was born in Amritsar, which is in Punjab. My dad was born in Bachmari, which is a small I guess you call it a hill station in India, but that kind of just means like a town um, in a beautiful area. Um, so my dad was born the year after the Indian partition with Pakistan, um, a year after Indian independence, and his family had left Pakistan and was living in Bachmati for, for reasons that I can't quite remember. Um, and then both of them grew up in Delhi. I mean, my mom's family already lived in Delhi, but there's a tradition of giving birth in your in the maternal home, like in the the mom's uh, home that she grew up in. So my parents both grew up in Delhi. Then um, my dad went to medical school, and at the time there was a huge brain drain happening among Indian doctors, and a lot of them were coming to the U.S. and to other countries. So it was the thing to do in his medical school to move to the u.s there's tons of people from his class living in the u.s and and we grew up among a lot of them um and then my parents got married after that they had an arranged marriage but you know the word arranged marriage is kind of loose like they they definitely chose each other i mean they met a variety of people and then they they chose each other uh there was a newspaper ad involved in all of that. There was a copy. <laughs> um, it's really not arranged marriage the way a lot of people conceptualize it. It's kind of like parent approved. They're mm. dating with a very fast <laughs> transition from we had coffee together to, um, I think about three days. So um, I think a lot of people don't understand that that's, what arranged marriage has been even for a couple of generations now mm. that sometimes it is, but it's not always like we mandate that you marry this person. Um, awesome. At least in, in my, in my parents instance, it was a little bit more arranged mm -hmm. as you, well, it was 
arranged in the sense that my dad got to choose, but my mom didn't really know what was going on. Mm. It was the kind of setup where um, my, um, gosh, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to mess up the story, but I know that like my, um, my dad went to school with one of my mom's brothers and they kind of chatted about it. And then it was sort of arranged that my mom would be at a sari shop one day, like looking at <laughs> my dad was just outside on the sidewalk, just like looking inside. And he was just like, yeah, let's do it. And then, um, like let's meet or let's get married. No, let's get married. <laughs> right. It was like, okay, yeah, let's get married. And then there's a story about how, you know, my dad's family, like after it was all like set up, like this is going to happen my dad's family like came over to my mom's house and like my mom, you know, got all dressed up and then she was serving everyone their tea. Right. And it was like, you know, a lot of, a lot of people from my dad's family were there and, you know, she was serving everyone tea. And then at the end of it, like they all got up and they left and my mom like asked someone, I think it was her mom. So like, which one was he? Right. She didn't know. And then, <laughs> and then they were just like, oh, he didn't come today. <laughs> <laughs> I think wow. that's a pretty classic story, though. Like, I think there's so many stories like this, you know, millions. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know when they actually met, right? Like, I, I think they met before the engagement, but I'm not positive. You know, arranged marriage um, is something that is like known to be a part of South Asian tradition that is different from like American tradition. Although I think that there's a lot of similar situations in other cultures. For example, on my father's side, his mother and my paternal grandfather's first wife were both matchmade marriages in which the first wife came from Jamaica and the second wife from China and it was pretty arranged. But um, how do you guys feel about the institution and about like, I think more, more, moreover, the way that it's perceived in America? It's so complicated. It's like, I think like we've talked about it a lot and I have so many thoughts about it, right? Like, I think it's, it's obviously, it's something that can work, right? Like the, the idea of arranged marriage and it's worked for generations and generations, like, you know, my parents, like I, t- I just told you, like how they got married and they've been married now. They're about to celebrate their 48th wedding anniversary, awesome. uh, which is crazy, actually just in a couple of days. And, you know, my brother had a semi-arranged um, setup. And so it's like, I'm not, you know, I, I, I think it's an institution that can, can certainly work. It's not for everyone. I, I think if both people come into the situation with the same mindset, um, I think it can certainly work. Like if, if you come into the mindset of, you know, we have some base level, some foundation of like what we want, what we're looking for. Um, I do think you can learn to fall in love, right? I, I think that that's something that's completely possible to do. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm opposed to it. It's just both people have to be like 100% on board mm-hmm. with and I think growing up in the U.S., it's hard to wrap your head around that, um, especially like friends of mine who, you know, they hear about people like today having arranged marriages, right? Like whether that's, I mean, a lot, like a lot of Indian people, right? If they hear about it, it's like, wait, no, you're, 
I thought you were just like me. I thought we had similar ideas about like life and love and like, wait, what? Kind of like, I thought you were a modern person who does modern things. Why are you doing this kind of old fashioned backward yeah. tradition? Yeah, no, back, so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, I think it's hard, it's hard for people to understand who aren't like from cultures where that's like common or normal. Mm. Um, so I don't know. And I, I, I think that I am a little bit more open-minded about um, arranged marriages than, than like, than most of the people like in my circle. Um, but, you know, I just, I've seen it work so well, like for my parents and my brother, and it's hard to just be like, no, like this could never work, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that whatever you say, you didn't have one yourself. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. But like, it's, it's not something I never considered. I know. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's impossible to talk about arranged marriage without just like the acknowledgement that like women have had so much less agency around relationships and marriage and even just like choosing the trajectory of their life than men. And I think the thing is like, when you talk about arranged marriage as a concept, I don't think it's necessarily awful, but like you really can't talk about it without talking about like the ways that it's been, I don't know, intertwined with patriarchy and so, like, to me, the idea of matchmaking without patriarchy is, is kind of intriguing, but it doesn't exist. And mm. so, I mean, I, I mean, I come to this as someone who was sort of unsure about marriage, period. Like, um, you know, and we can talk openly about this because we have so many times, but I was kind of anti-marriage as an institution and chose to get married because it made sense for so many things about our lives, including our families, like fully accepting each other and allowing each other to become integrated in our lives. Um, but I, I think that marriage shortchanges women in so many ways. And so anything that takes away agency from women concerns me. And I think there could be other ways to do it that don't look like that, but I don't know what they are because I haven't seen them. As I understand it, for both of you, your parents are in the States. Um, do they ever plan to move back? And do you think that there's some home homesickness still? Or do you think at this point, this is home for them? Our parents literally cannot handle India. Well, <laughs> I think her parents are a little bit different than mine. I think like my, my mom, you know, again, she's, one, she's like one of 10, right? So, so much of her siblings and you know unfortunately a couple of them are passed away in the last handful of years but mm. i think like and they they do spend you know three four months a year at this point in india like they have an apartment there um and so they spend a lot of time there but you know it's like the india that they grew up in right like in the 60s and whatnot like that india doesn't exist anymore Right. And I think they have a lot of nostalgia for that time. And they have a lot of like nostalgia for those relationships and just how fun it was. And the reality now is like Bangalore in 2020 is just, it's like unrecognizable. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of the, a lot of like what they've picked up in the US over the last 20, 30 years. Like they, just, it's hard for them to believe that India is different. And there's a lot of things that they don't like about like Bangalore in 2020. Um, so I think, and yeah, I think it's just extremely complicated. Like they can't go back to the life that they had mm. before they moved to the U.S. 
but I mean, there's just so much family, so much connections. They're never going to be disassociated, but I also don't think they'll ever move there full time. Uh, Apoorva's dad, like, gets really frustrated, though, about, like, the basics of handling life in India, because I mean, he, he also, had an like, apartment, yeah. and it was, like, too much drama to maintain. I mean, the main thing was Different. that he wanted to watch American football. <laughs> like, Patriots, right? Like, we're huge Patriots fans. <laughs> Last time we were in India was during the playoffs, and this was a huge deal. We, like, almost planned our whole trip around this. Wow. Right? Because it was just like, wait, there's no reliable way to stream this like content. And it's just like, it was so like infuriating to him that like, what the hell is this? Right? Like, like we're in Bangalore, like the technology capital of like Asia. And it's like, I can't get this football game. Like, what are we even doing? Right? Right. Man. I, my, my parents have gone like full on California yuppies. So I don't know. <laughs> any possibility there's like a point zero point zero percent are they proud of what india has become you know i think my parents are are not proud of what malaysia has become since they left but they are proud of what china has become um and and they go to china a lot and um and i think especially for my dad um Malaysia was the country he was born into, but he always felt like a second-class citizen upon account of his race. And so I think he always craved a strong China that would be a place for our race, you know, and for our people to, to be proud of. I'm curious how your parents feel, how you guys feel about, like, modern India. I don't know. I mean, I think my parents have a, a nuanced view of India, more nuanced than mine in a lot of ways. I think they see that it's, ascended in a lot of ways economically and i think they also see its social problems very deeply um when my mom was still living in india she was a social worker so she has a particular perspective on you know the the economic inequality and and what life is like there that the rest of us don't necessarily have um so i don't know if they're proud i think they have complicated views i guess and and those views they they must be entwined so much with how they see their own lives too um and personally i i don't know i mean i'm not someone who who buys in too much to a narrative of progress that's only economic like it has to go along with social progress so to me i'm i'm an outsider in a lot of ways i don't have a sense of like patriotism or pride i have a lot of questions um and they're not just about India, they're about, you know, how all of us, how the whole world is perceiving progress and how that leaves a lot of people behind. Um, I think India and Indian Americans sometimes take the extreme on that narrative. Like they're obsessed with development and growth and don't necessarily look at the deeper issues. And that's, I think that's also true of Indians in America in their personal lives, not just looking afar at the economic progress of the country. But I think there are a lot of Indians in the U.S. who see that, you know, they have been able to move up the class ladder. They've been able to make a lot of money. They've been able to provide their kids with a certain lifestyle and that don't really have a lens on social issues that that don't really care. It's kind of a question of like, I got mine I'm not really worried about the rest. So I think there's an element of that 
not as like an Indian national identity, but as some subset of India, a sort of middle-class national identity that from sitting on the outside, I don't know that I quite get it. And then at the same time, I see it as, you know, a consequence of my own growing up in a well-off professional class family. Like it's easy for me to critique. Um, Mm. So that doesn't really answer your question, but that's, that's like what I, I think about when you ask that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think like if you were to ask my parents, I think the end, like just that question, like, are you proud of what India has become? Like, I mean, I'm I'm almost certain they would say no. Right. And it's, um, and you know, I think I, I, and yeah, I don't know what other, like other people who migrated to the U S like would say to that, because I think, again, like I mentioned before, like they have so much nostalgia for how they grew up. Right. And just like what it was like back then. And, you know, I, I think they, that's, that's kind of their view of India. Right. And so I don't know if there's any, I don't know what path India could have taken over the last 40 years to make them answer yes, right? I am proud of where it's become. It's because it's, it's what they left behind, right? Yeah. They left behind. I think it's hard to like objectively think through that like, oh, the country's gotten better since I left, right? Like, mm. I, I think it would be hard for them to, to say that. But I, I know every time they, they do go to India, there's a lot of like, oh, why is it this way? Why do we do things that way? Like, why is this? Like, and it's like, it's a lot of focus on like, what isn't there? And mm. like, you know, there, there is, there's acknowledgement of like progress that's been made, but I think there is some sort of sorrow about why couldn't things have just stayed the way they were? Mm. It was simpler, right? Like, and especially Bangalore, again, like the city has just changed night and day. Um, yeah. And so like, it, it just doesn't exist anymore. Like that, that, that time and that place doesn't exist anymore. So. So, so many people think that dealing with multiculturalism um, and its implications is a Western issue. They think it's like a U.S. issue, a Europe issue, and, you know, Australia. They don't think about the fact that countries like India have to deal with that on a larger scale, actually, mm. than, than we do here. Like, they that, you know, we we are a linguistically diverse country in the u.s but not nearly anything like a place like india where so so in the u.s people speak tons of different languages as their home language but the default model is that then the next generation speaks english fluently in india it's way more complicated right like you go to a different state and there is a different language that is spoken by default and like there isn't a reliable assumption that the next generation is going to speak a common language. Like mm. there are all kinds of educational things, cultural things that that make that not true. And like India is a true multicultural country by origin, not just by immigration. And so like, I think a lot of what, you know, Apoor was saying about his family has to do with that as well. That like Bangalore as a city now has to deal with all kinds of migration that is not necessarily, um, from outside the country, but also from within it. Although some of it's from outside, there's a lot of people from Bangladesh that work in India as, as migrants. Um, but like, it's, I think our, our parents didn't necessarily live in the same multicultural society that India is today. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's true of Apoorva's parents. I don't know if it's true of my parents and that Delhi is a different beast. Um, 
But people in the West have such a narrow view of that. And they think that that's sort of the territory of Western countries. And it's not, it happens everywhere. Just mm. in- um, And this is also like, I think for us as second generation folks, like, I mean, we have so much in common and that's certainly part of what has brought us together as a couple is like that shared understanding of what it's like to grow up here and to grapple with identity issues. But we are from different cultures, like Aprova and I, and and that became, I think, a lot more clear to us when we went to India. Um, we went in January, so just a few months ago. Like, we're really not from the same culture, and that that is something that I think a lot of like people here just don't understand. Like, they just assume that like, okay, we're an Indian couple, we're not like in an interracial relationship, but we are certainly in an intercultural relationship. Um, but then I think the other piece of that is like, as you grow up second generation in the US, I think one of the great benefits that you receive is that you don't believe that you have to be comfortable everywhere. Like you don't believe that you're entitled to have the people around you interact in a way that's comfortable for you. Like you are sometimes faced to be, like you just have to deal with the fact that you don't always know the cultural norms, that you're going to make mistakes, mm. that you're going to feel embarrassed, you're going to feel insecure, you're going to feel ashamed sometimes. Mm. Um, that's part of growing up. And so then, like, for example, you know, for me, like meeting a Purvis family, like extended family, I think there were moments when I felt like, oh, gosh, like, I just don't know how to interact in this situation. And yes, that's not a good feeling, but at the same time, it's a feeling that I know how to tolerate because it was part of my own upbringing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think like that's under acknowledged as a skill that, that people bring to life. um, And that I think helps us all navigate the world a little bit. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, as I was like thinking about like having this conversation with you, Mark, it was like, that's, that's what I thought about, right? Like the idea of like, being second generation, but it's also like, you know, in the US, we think about, okay, like the people growing up in the South is like very different than like living on one of the coasts, right? Mm -hmm. Like West is like very different from growing up like in an area like Texas or Florida. Mm -hmm. People don't think about that in India. Like people don't, people in the US like think of like Indian culture as like a monoculture. Right. And I, I think like folks are waking up a little bit more to that, that mm. they're different cultures. And yeah, I mean, you know, we had a, we had an Indian wedding. And so for most people, you know, it'd be like, oh, it's an Indian wedding. And most people probably didn't notice the nuance of like the South Indian elements, mm. or North Indian elements. Right. Um, whereas like, yeah, I, so I, I, I think that that is just like a common misconception um, but like like what Natasha was talking about in terms of growing up in the U.S. and in, in like scenarios where you're not comfortable, I think that's something that I've just taken so much away from, right? Especially growing up in, I told you I was born in Massachusetts. I also lived in Tennessee and Ohio, finished, co- finished high school in Northern California, went to school in Southern California, um, and then I was in North Carolina for a couple of years. I've been here in Seattle for eight years now. And it's, it's wild, you know, like growing up in areas where 
you know, I was one of three non-white people in my school in Tennessee. Mm. What sort of assimilation does that require, right? And what, what sort of assimilation does it take, like, being in Ohio? And, like, there's other things where in California it was less than, like, 10% white in my school, right? And it's mm. just sort of, like, just culture shock. Mm. I think it's prepared me well for those scenarios, like, even in India, where it's just, like, okay, just, like, being able to analyze a situation be like, okay, these people don't think I belong here mm. right not i don't fit in with what they're expecting mm. and there's kind of like a computer in my brain that like helps me like navigate um yeah it's that's the whole like fitting in versus belonging thing mm. mm-hmm. grappled with for a long time and i still don't you know still don't know how to navigate that but i think that's kind of a story of adulthood fitting in versus belonging I'm curious about you guys' childhoods. Um, you'd mentioned to Porva that you lived in some places where you were one of the only non-white kids and other places where uh, that was not the case. The former is my experience. I grew up in a small town where most everyone was white and I fought like hell to fit in. And as I reflect on my childhood, the core story was I am Australian too, you know. Uh, and when we'd go back to Malaysia during every third summer or so, it was foreign and and I never felt like I fit in and and I didn't really like it. You know, it was like dirty and gross and they had squat toilets, you know, like dumb, <laughs> like bougie things that like <laughs> my Australian assimilationist brain was, was saying about being back in Malaysia. I'm curious how your childhoods were in terms of your relationship with, you know, the towns you grew up, the, the communities you grew up in, and then your relationship with India. Um, I can go. I feel like, I I feel like my relationship with all of that is, is pretty classic. Um, so I have a sister who's a year older than me. We're 14 months apart. So what was nice is we got to do everything together. We were, you know, really close to the same age and really close to the same, you know, we, we obviously grew up with the same upbringing. And so there was that as a big element. And when you were talking about the squat toilets, I remember we went to Delhi when I was like, probably, I I can't remember which trip this was like either I was seven or I was 14, which are such different ages developmentally. But I remember my sister told me that she went to the bathroom at the airport in Delhi. This was before the airport in Delhi became this like super fancy international Asian airport and was like, just a developing country airport and she had to go to the bathroom and it was a squat toilet. And she told me about it. She was like, yeah, me and this other girl who was clearly from our flight. And who's also like American. We just looked at each other and we just had this like look on our face, like, Oh God. Um, And so I think there's just always been a shared experience with all of this. Like I grew up with a lot of other people from, from our background, right? Like we had, a big Indian community that we were part of. I'm still friends with a lot of these folks and like we got to do it together. And I think that makes a big difference. Um, And, you know, like in high school, a lot of my friends were either Indian or Asian. And even now as an adult, like most of my friends are from somewhat similar backgrounds, maybe not quite as much. Um, And like, you know, there's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of like shared understanding. 
I got so many text messages when this show Never Have I Ever came out. Mm -hmm. We've been watching it. Yeah, it's really fun and it really does like see the experience right. Um, But like everyone in my life texted me being like, you have to watch this show. Um, And so I think like there's always been some difficulties and there's always been a lot of bonding around like what it's like to be an Indian growing up in the U.S. Um, And my parents kind of get it too now. Like they can make the jokes too. Um, And one thing that I didn't understand as I was growing up is that as I was growing up, my parents were also becoming more assimilated, more American, more acculturated. And so like some of the arguments that I remember having with my parents as a kid, they wouldn't happen now because now my parents are like California yuppies who want to go to Whole Foods and eat lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, it's really interesting that you don't notice as a kid that your parents are doing this process alongside you. And you think, of course there's generational strife, of course there's cultural strife, but like they are actually changing their own relationship and beliefs. And, you know, a kid can never see that about their own parents, but an adult child can. And it's really interesting to watch and reflect on. So like, yeah, of course I had like instances where I felt excluded or I felt different or whatever, but in retrospect, more of what I see is that a lot of people in our generation, like created our own cultural identity and our own sort of generational identity together. And we, we have a lot of shared experience and shared joy and shared angst. And it's, it's been a good ride in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of the, the aspect of not, not fully appreciating. I mean, when you're a kid, like you, you imagine your parents have everything like figured out. Right. And I, I guess I didn't appreciate how much like my parents did to like try to make me like fit in. My parents always made an effort to have a Christmas tree up right over Christmas or like do things like have Turkey at Thanksgiving or like make sure I had a costume for Halloween. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't because it was important to them. It was just because they wanted me to fit in. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. at school like when everybody else was talking about that they wanted me to have that experience to talk about it right even though they had no idea like what do you put on a tree right like what what goes into like thanksgiving there was no like google where you could look these things up you just kind of like had to figure that out and they really i think they were assimilating as much as i was they were doing the best they could Mm -hmm. and you know for me sports was like a big way that i like got into American culture, right? My dad into sports growing up. My brother is nine years older than me. And so he was like, he kind of laid the groundwork for me in so many different ways, but it's kind of how I related to people, right? Like, even though I was like one of the, one of the only non-Indian people, it's like, oh, but he's like good at baseball. Like, okay, Mm. I don't know what to do with this, right? (laughs) Like, Wait, you're supposed to be, you know, the model minority, like you talked about, where it's just like, okay, like good at school, like well-behaved, like fits in, like that's like fits the prototype, but it's like, wait, he's like good at sports? Wasn't that, was that partly a, um, don't box me in as just the smart Asian kid. I'm also like athletic. I I think that's how, that's how I looked at things. Um, But I think it confused a lot of people because like I didn't fit into that box for a lot of people and I, I think I felt good about that 
Um, that was a source of pride for me as well. Like yeah, the fact I mean, that I was well, good at sports. It's part of my identity, right? It's not, I'm just, I'm not just another little Indian kid who's like smart, right? It was just like, yeah, but I'm good at sports too. And like, I know more about sports than you do. <laughs> right. Right. And it's so like, I sort of like had a chip on my shoulder about that, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of how I acculturated. And I told you that I moved around quite a bit. And, you know, I think having those like, having those little traditions, those little like American traditions that I could like talk through, um, having experiences like sports that I could talk through. And, you know, nowadays we think we see like Netflix shows like Never Have I Ever, but those like didn't exist in the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you know, again, I mentioned like brother's nine years older than me. And so like he went off to college, like when I was in fourth grade and we just moved to Tennessee and moving to Ohio. And so like, I didn't have that many people to talk to about like this experience of like growing up as an Indian American where there isn't a whole lot of like representation. And like, I watched a lot of TV growing up, right? Mm-hmm. Like tons of TV, um, you know, most of my, like almost all my friends were white. So it was a lot of assimilation. There wasn't a lot of representation. So it was like trying to piece together things. Like I wonder like how things would have been different right like if I had a sibling close to my age or you know there was as much like representation as we see right now like I wonder if like I wouldn't have tried to like assimilate as much as I think I did growing up Mm. I guess we'll never know but I think it's still something that I'm unraveling you know as we I think never ever is a good good thing I mean good thing to talk about just because it's that that never would have existed. Never even five years ago. Never. Just like yeah, even just five years ago. Yeah. yeah. Alone, 20, 25, 30 years. It's ago, wild. Right? We have come up in a really interesting era, I think, as Indian Americans, because we didn't get to have our culture reflected to us as children or teenagers, but we get to have a lot of it as adults because mm-hmm. there's right. a lot of now famous media Indian Americans. Um, and they're awesome and they're funny mostly. They're mostly comedians, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we, we get to have our younger lives reflected to us as adults. Yeah. We didn't get to have it as kids and teenagers, which maybe on some level that's when you need it more, like developing yes. speaking. But at the same time, um, you know, I think part of why these folks are creative and are, are doing this whole thing is because they also didn't have that. And so in a way, that kind of adversity is very generative, right? Mm-hmm. Like it creates a lot of creativity. It creates a lot of humor. Um, so there's a part of you that wishes that, okay, I wish we had this when we were young. I wish we could have felt seen in this way. And then there's a part of you that just acknowledges that like, okay, this is who I became because I didn't have that. And this is who I am as an adult because I didn't have that. And how, how did I compensate? How did I become creative or compassionate because of that? Mm. Yeah, I've thought about that too. Sometimes when I see the state of youth, sort of identity politics and, you know, and culture around like microaggressions and, and part of me feels so old where I'm like, well, I dealt with all sorts of racist shit and it made me tougher and you can hack it to it made me who I am and and, and that kind of narrative. There's lots of suffering and, and torment in the world that probably, to your point, is generative. Like maybe going through awful things like the Holocaust or slavery were also very generative, but it certainly doesn't mean that um, the, the positive 
things that come out of overcoming that adversity means <laughs> that that adversity should exist in the first place, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like in some way it's a fucked up comparison, you know, like there there has to be a line between what is inhumane and what is trauma. Like there's trauma and there's exclusion and they have to intersect somewhere. But like I I think especially now as a lot of people are grappling with like really what racial inequity in America is. And of course, many people have been grappling with this for a lifetime but it's, it's the central conversation right now and many people are grappling with it for the first time. Like what I have had to understand about myself and my privilege is that I experienced like social exclusion in some ways as a result of my identity, but I have never experienced like any kind of institutional oppression. Mm. I have had every privilege in that regard. Some you know, there are some ways that that whiteness grants people privilege that I don't have access to, but the vast majority I do. Um, And so I think the comparison is unfair. Like we can't talk about those really deep and violent forms of oppression in relationship to, to myself. But what we, what, what there is, is this like social exclusion that has developed, you know, parts of our identities, I think, And that's not true for everyone who's Indian. That's not true for everyone who's Asian American. I mean, it intersects a lot with class. It intersects a lot with with other aspects of identity. But it's complicated. And I think a lot of people haven't looked at it. What was the the phrasing, the, the distinction you made, Natasha, between institutionalized oppression, such as that which Black people in this country obviously face, experience, and what we've experienced? Well, yeah, I I don't feel like I have like any real expertise to speak to this issue. Right. But I, I feel like, and, and really like, I don't want to say that I'm speaking for anyone besides myself here. Of course. And I like totally acknowledge the, the class privilege that plays into this too. And that's not everyone's experience at all. Um, But like, I feel like the basics in life, the things that everyone needs to have a thriving life, you know, are things like safety, healthcare, education, job security, like on those things, I feel like I personally, as like an Indian American coming from a professional class family, um, I've had all of those things in about the same measure as white people with similar classes. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so my experience of like, my racialized experiences, they don't result in institutional oppression. Mm. I'm not saying that there isn't some element of discrimination present at certain times. Like, I think there are certain situations in which whiteness might have benefited me. Like, I think, you know, when I was in grad school, I had a, a certain professor who I think kind of backstabbed me. And I think part of it is that, you know, I'm, I, I don't remind her of herself, you know, mm. and like, ways in which I think I come off to people as, as maybe threatening as a brown woman with certain, um, with a certain amount of self-assuredness. So I'm not saying that I haven't had any experiences that are racialized within those institutions, Mm. but I will say that on the whole, I get to win, you know, I get to have, nobody believes that I'm undeserving of them. 
And that's just not true for, you know, a lot of black folks, a lot of indigenous folks, a lot of Latino folks, like that's just not true. Those aren't the experiences they have. A lot of Pacific Islanders, like, so like we have to get away, I think, from breaking everything down as people of color experience this. Um, right. And we have to really also look at how we benefit and how class plays into that too, how gender plays into that, how like the specific experience is different in every situation right. you're interacting with. Um, religion as well. I mean, so I have two really close South Asian friends, um, both women and we we text a lot we have this ongoing like online journal thing that we do and i realized that their experiences are different in a lot of ways by virtue of being muslim mm. and being clearly muslim having those last names and you know presenting differently celebrating different holidays like wearing the hijab at certain points in their lives um so like it's not it's not universal it's really complex but I personally have never really experienced the, the kind of oppression that dictates your life outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so like my question now becomes or has been for a while, especially in my clinical work, how do I change that for other people? And like how to do it from this strange position of not being white, but having a lot of privilege but also sometimes feeling excluded from the conversation. Mm. Um, it's really weird and it's really, it's really come to the forefront a lot in the last couple of weeks, but it was always there before that. And, um, you know, in my, my work, so I work as a speech therapist, I work in an outpatient clinic that's part of a public hospital. A lot of what I do is work with two, three and four year olds who come to our clinic because they're not talking and either they have an autism diagnosis or we walk them through that process and, and find that out along the way, try to get them into preschool programs, try to create a supportive family environment to, you know, help them achieve goals around communication. And like being, being second generation has really helped me with that because people come, you know, we, it's a really diverse environment. Um, and when I say really diverse, I, that's not code for like black and brown. It's, and it's not code for like economically disadvantaged. Like our, my, my clients really kind of are the spectrum from like, you know, the, the white kid of a doctor to a family that might be undocumented and might have very little access to services or support. Um, and where sometimes I, I'm trying to serve as that gateway. Mm. Um, a lot of kids come to us from FQHCs, which are um, federally qualified health centers. They're like, you know, generally serve people on Medicaid or people who are uninsured. Um, and so like, it's, it's really interesting working in this kind of environment as someone with a lot of privilege, but as someone who is not white and who understands what a cultural disconnect between the services that we provide and the things that families might be looking for are. Mm. And who's like, I see a lot of my white coworkers make a lot of interesting assumptions around parenting, around um, just what, what people's lives and attitudes look like, I guess, and how that impacts the therapy we're trying to provide. And I, I see it as an outsider because 
I also don't work at all in the community that I grew up in. Um, I, I don't think I've ever had a patient or a client from my own cultural background. Mm. Like, I don't think I've ever worked with the kind of like a middle-class North Indian family ever. Mm. Like everything I do is a cross-cultural interaction. Whereas I think a lot of my colleagues who are white see themselves as the default and everyone else as an other. And so, okay, I have to somehow become culturally competent to serve black and brown kids. Whereas I'm like, life is an exercise in cultural competence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think like that, that question of like, how do you learn to sit with what's uncomfortable is something that a lot of us have had to learn from early childhood. And that a lot of, for example, my own coworkers have had to sit with, you know, only in their professional lives. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, of course, maybe they have other life experiences like interracial dating or, I don't know, living somewhere really different from where they grew up or whatever, but it's different. It is. How you guys feel about the notion of a pan-Indian identity? When I was in college, I think I learned the phrase ABCD, right? American-born, confused, Daisy. I don't even know if that's still a word, like if people still use that phrase. Um, But do you feel much sense of connection or solidarity with other Indians in America? I mean, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but it is, um, you know, that first gen, second gen thing. I think like I can certainly, I feel like I relate, I feel like I can relate to like Indian immigrants who came here in the last like 10 years or so. Um, but there's, there's a, there's a different level, I think, of understanding with like the ABCDs, right? Where it's just like, there's some sort of, without it, there's some sort of like unsaid understanding of like kind of know what your upbringing was like. Right. And especially those people that I think grew up in areas where there weren't like quite as many Indians, like in the area, right. Like people who grew up like in the Midwest or like in different parts of the East coast. Like I think there's some sort of like shared understanding about like what this person's upbringing was. Um, And, you know, I think that's, part of what brought us together too is that we are both in the traditional sense like ABCDs. I hate this phrase. I have to interrupt. I fucking hate the whole ABCD. (laughs) (laughs) What do you what do you hate about it? The fact that it involves the word confused? I am not confused. I mean do I strike you as confused? Like I feel like I have a very nuanced and complicated view on identity. And it's, it's born of, you know, whatever experiences I've had in my life. Um, and like, I think like, you know, this phrase was like put on us when we were younger and it was kind of popularized in this movie. What was the movie called? Is it that Cal Penn movie? Yes. I yeah. think it was called like American Daisy. I've seen that movie. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Did it really come? To I, really I, it was popularized, I think. Okay. Like that was when I first heard it. My parents first heard it. And of course we all think it's hilarious at the time because Yes, we were teenagers. Of course we were confused. Find me a teenager who's not confused about their identity. And I feel like it's so unfair to pin this label of confusion as if it's a negative on like teenagers and young adults. It's like, no, like this is what teenagers are supposed to do. You know, monoculture kids do this too. They find their place in the world. They reject their parents. Like, this is classic developmental stuff. And like, I hate that even as adults, people refer to us as if we're confused. Yeah. Like, 
yes, there are things, there are ways in which I will never be able to, you know, act the right way within my parents' cultural context. Yes, there are ways that like I might be different within sort of the the white American culture. But like that's not a result of confusion. It's like actually like we navigate multiple cultures and we we pick and choose what we want to integrate in ourselves from each of them. And then there are some things we don't pick or we don't choose. And yes, we have like, you know, angst or anger about certain things. But like, I feel like it's this asshole label that like the first generation puts on the second generation. And it's like, okay, but you also have to own the fact that you came here. <laughs> and you're like, you didn't know that you would have to grapple with a lot of cultural issues and that your kids would have to grapple with a lot of cultural issues. Like, of course you didn't know that, but like, why would you deflect the blame for that and put it on young people? Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. I mean, I did identify with being confused so <laughs> on that because I, you know, the context, the, the con, the constant context switching that I had to do, like I was legitimately confused and I can own that, you know, like I, I never knew, like, was I, was I American? Was I Indian? Was I both? Like, when we're celebrating South Indian holidays at home and then, you know, it's a huge deal for us and then going to school the next day and like, no one knows what the hell you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, for me. Like I, you know, when I was six, seven, eight, nine, like even beyond, right? And I think just the context, the constant context switching did, it really had me like, and just being an area where there weren't many Indian people, I didn't know who, like what my identity was and, I don't think that that's what most people growing up like dealt with. Like, I think there was something different about that. Um, and sure, like, and then you layer on the stuff, like all the, all the stuff that teenagers have to have to deal with and put up with. And yeah, I, so I, I, I think that I, that did resonate with me, right. The whole like you know, American born confused part of it. Um, but I mean, I'm sure I'm sure being confused is not something that's um, specific to Indians, like second generation Indians, but yeah, I can attest to that. But it it has the the fun linguistic flow of being the first four letters of the alphabet. And maybe that's why it took off. (laughs) It actually like there is someone who like did the whole alphabet, right? It's like, American born confused, they see emigrated from Gujarat, housing. It does keep going. Uh, that's really good. I have the humor, and like that movie particularly is actually hilarious, and like my whole family loved this movie. But I just, I hate it when it's overused. Mm. At- and in sort of a pejorative manner, like I, I identify with everything Apoorva said. Like I, I had those experiences. Yeah. And well, and I, I don't like, I don't like the whole boxing thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit before, but like, I don't like how people are like, oh, you're an ABCD, right? And it's like, oh, I know everything I need to know about you kind mm. of thing, right? So that annoys the hell out of me for sure. Yeah. Um, that's why I constantly, like, I do get a little bit of joy in terms of like, surprising people when I like don't fit into that box and I think I do still constantly try to do that um if you had to summarize the box when people say oh you're an ABCD what are some of the things that are implied start 
I don't even know where to start. <laughs> well, I mean, who's, who's saying it? It also depends on who's saying it. Like, is it one of our parents saying it? Is it like a white person saying it? Is it someone our age who grew up in India and still lives there saying it? Mm. Like, the boxes are different based on who's creating them, I would say. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I don't, you don't really see like, white people calling mm. me an ABCD, right? I was imagining first-geners, maybe. Like, if you were to meet a first-gen yeah, Indian. I don't think first-generation Indian people, or people in India, like, referring to us as ABCDs. And, I mean, it's almost always in, like, a negative way. Yeah, it's right? like, you're culturally illiterate. Yeah. You're here, and you're culturally illiterate. Maybe they think you're spoiled. And, yeah, it's like in it's a va- Like, in a vacuum, like... Like I mentioned, like, I think it's, it's fine. Like just in a vacuum, but the way people use it tends to be in a, I don't want to say derogatory, but usually like a negative, mm-hmm. way, right? It's just like a dismissive, like, oh, like you're not Indian, right? Like you you're, don't know, you're an ABC. You don't get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like people like first generation Indians in the U.S. who are, might be older saying like, oh, you don't understand like what it means to be Indian. Mm. There's oh, yeah. a similar phrase in Chinese, but it doesn't have that fun, like, it's yeah. not in English, and it, it doesn't have that fun thing, which I think is partly the appeal of it. It's Hawaii. And and there's another sort of permutation of that, um, and I can't remember if I'm saying it, but it's like Hai Gui, which is like a, a, a play on, the, the, on homonyms of like a sea turtle that's like returned to China, returned to the motherland. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would be a Hawaii in that I'm of like Chinese blood, but born overseas. And when I would tell people that's a common concept in mainland China, I think, yeah, it carried some of those notions of cultural illiteracy and not really knowing who you are. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's connected to a very deep, um, sometimes problematic sense of, uh, of, of Chinese, you know, um, exclusivity or, or uh, you know, the specialness of the Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. But uh, it's also associated with a sense of like, um, historically at least, of of like the lucky ones, I think, who got out and, you know, America is the land of milk and honey, which even to this day, I think a lot of Chinese people still associate this country with being. Um, so yeah, it's it's mixed in that sense. And I, I, I might be projecting, but I imagine that when people carry bring that dismissiveness there's there's a tinge of like economic like uh assumption assumed you know inferiority that that's that's mixed into it i think all of this stuff is uh sort of a product of feelings of grief and disconnection that people aren't able to acknowledge fully like i think part of the reason you know who's calling you an abcd it's it's your own family right and i think part of what's actually happening is like you know, one thing that happens in families that haven't have left and have immigrated is that there's disconnection between people from different generations. There's disconnection between, you know, cousins of the same generation that grew up in different places. Um, and we don't know how to bridge it. Our interactions can be awkward sometimes. Um, we don't get to just feel like a sense of like belonging. Um, there are language difficulties. There are cultural difficulties that make it hard and nobody likes to feel that but also nobody talks about it i mean i've never heard this discussed literally ever Mm. 
And so then what do you do? You find humor, you find like labels, you find ways to discount each other. You find ways to express anger towards each other, minimize each other's experiences or just not bother, just disengage. Like these are really classic reactions to feelings of like disconnection. Um, I think that's a lot of what's at play with, with like words like ABCD and like, I mean, humor has definitely, you know, been a huge part of like the restorative connection to my family and my, and, and a lot of other people, like, the good thing is you get to laugh about all of it and it's funny. And now there's all these good memes and like little mm. video clips that get sent on WhatsApp and whatever. But like, I think there's a deeper thing going on there. Mm. I didn't know there's all these memes um, about it. Who, who's propagating this meme? The ABCD sort of being yeah, self-deprecating. Family WhatsApp group. It's like, <laughs> some of it we don't understand. We don't understand the memes because they're like in Punjabi. <laughs> That's neat. Did you guys watch The Namesake? The Namesake is gorgeous. Mm. I read the book before the book I watched is great, the movie. Yeah. My sister went to watch The Namesake with my mom and one of my mom's close friends. And uh, she asked them out, like coming out of the theater, she asked them, did you relate to this? And my mom's friend was just like, Millie, of course we related to it. It was like they put the story of our life on a screen. And I thought that was like really intense and kind of profound mm. that, that that could happen. And again, it's like this thing of like, it happened for a lot of us kind of like just after the time when we needed it. Mm. But that's a gorgeous book. Yeah. And the movie's The great. movie was great yeah. too. Yeah, I went to college with Cal Penn. So like every, everything that he does, I'm just like, oh, that guy, he's like, <laughs> He's doing Famous. something. He's doing something. Did you did you know it, him? Yeah, Were you guys buddies? Indian American star. That's right. Like when I was at <laughs> when I was at UCLA, they were uh, NBC had this pilot called Nevermind Nirvana, <laughs> and it was this story. It was like an American family. There were two brothers, and it was like you know it was a second generation experience, right? And they they had an open casting call for like Indian males with like in their twenties. And so, yeah, me and my friend Rahul, like we went down and we auditioned and I got past the first round. Mm. I'm just like, this acting thing, like I got it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't get a call back after, my sec after the second round. And I, I heard that the role went to Cal Penn and um, Russell Peters. Those are, they were going to be the two brothers. Huh. The show never made it to the air. So, oh, yeah. man. What was Cal Penn like at UCLA in college? Like, oh, did you know I, him? I don't, I didn't. I met him once, like, drunkenly at a party. Like, and he was, you know, he actually might have, I think he was four years ahead of me. So, like, when I was a freshman, he was just, like, generally around. I don't think he was still a student. He was know. probably just, like, dating the other freshmen. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I don't think he was actually, like, enrolled at the same time but he was in la as a budding actor and he would show up at parties so cool like you know, I, you know i saw him and john cho like right when harold and kumar was like about to come out and i yeah. saw him at an indian like um, culture show after party and i was like oh my god it's cal penn and john cho it's funny it's it's easy to make fun of harold and kumar but 
uh, it really it really was groundbreaking, you know. Oh, and I think when you look at that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. That was the tunnel in is some potheads. <laughs> like the right it. age to like receive it, right? Like it. potheads yeah. were like the thing. Yeah, like, Indian like model minorities, right? It's like oh, like right. idiots, like yeah, idiots, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um. I loved the namesake, and when I it came out and I watched the film, I then quickly went and read Jumpa's book um, because I felt very, you know, <laughs> uh, seen on screen, you know, for the first time, even if it was, you know, about an Indian family. Um, I'm glad that you guys um, had a similar connection to it. Um, uh, there was a trailer. I never actually have, I've never actually seen the film, but when I was just after, about to graduate college, about a Chinese American woman who um, is lesbian. And the story is about coming out to her parents and stuff like that. But the thing that stayed with me just in the trailer was that this woman was bicultural, that she was totally American and yet she spoke Chinese. And, and like that blew my mind. It really did. And, and that helped trigger me to get interested in learning Mandarin and um, move to China and, and do all this stuff. And so, you know, I think that that, that representation and just that notion that one can be both. It sounds so dumb in retrospect, but I'd never seen or really thought about it like that. And I'd always thought that there had to be a trade-off and I had to choose at some level and I had chosen. So yeah. Did you the farewell? I did. Yeah. I thought the farewell was like another new version yeah, I like, I like of that all this. And yeah. It was, it was really good. Yeah. I liked it as well. Um, Okafina is great. Uh, cool guys. I guess my last question then is, uh, what advice would you have for your younger selves? You know, maybe if you think about yourselves when you were, I don't know, eight or 14, or maybe wrestling with certain aspects of being second gen. When I was 11, I was in like Massachusetts. And over the course of the next four or five years, I like lived in four states. And that was, it was hard. You know, I think like the 11 to like, 18, 19 year, like it was just really hard. And I think I, I struggled with confidence quite a bit. I think that the identity stuff like really went into overdrive and, you know, I, I wish I had more, more confidence during those years. And like, I wish I was more like self-assured and just like, just valued myself more. And I guess I wish I asked for help a little bit more as opposed to just thinking that I can take on all of this stuff on my own. Um, yeah, I wish I, I wish I had known, right, that I could ask for help from people beyond just my parents, right? And like, um, and, and like, and like beyond my brother, like, I think there are other people I could have reached out to just to talk through things about, struggle and belonging and a lot of like the cultural issues that we've unpacked you know during this podcast like i just i i think i think that would have been good if i like just talked through honestly what was going on mm. i'm a little stuck like i have no idea i mean i think what i would have i think what's true about growing up for me is that as i got older i got to be more fully my own person like I think the boxes other people put you in matter a lot less past the age of about 20. 
But then I don't know how to translate that into advice because it's not very helpful advice to a 10 year old that, okay, you, you're going to get to really be yourself in a decade, like what is <laughs> a child. Um, so I don't know, like maybe just validating that like, Oh, a lot of what other people perceive in you is bullshit mm. and that you actually are just you. Um, and yes, you have all these like influences on who you are, but like, you're actually going to have a time in your life where you're going to get to be yourself. Cause like, I think that's like the unfair thing for a lot of like kids who are children of immigrants or just, you know, kids who are racialized. Um, it's just like, there's so many assumptions about who you are and you're just not seen fully like, and that's just a basic human need. And even in adulthood, to some extent, I felt that like my peers, who are white like they get to be themselves more fully in some ways like creatively or otherwise um without having to like grapple with some of this stuff and I don't at this point in my life have a whole lot of like resentment about that but I did as a younger person and so like I I don't know what you could give in terms of advice because like the truth is that like the world we had to navigate was the world we had to navigate Okie doke. So that was my discussion with Natasha and Apoorva. I found it interesting to note the differences and similarities in our experiences as Indian versus Chinese second-gen immigrants and our parents' own relationships with their countries of origin and migration. I appreciated the way Natasha parsed distinctions in her experience as an Indian-American versus the rather broad term of person of color. And it was also edifying to celebrate our shared experience as a generation only just beginning to see our stories represented in Western movies and TV shows. I'd love to know if anything stood out to you. Could you relate, or did you have a different take on any of our topics? If so, please leave a comment or review. And as always, if you liked this episode, please consider recommending it to a friend. For more information about the show, please visit markq3.wixsite.com slash howtosecondgen. And thank you for listening.